Hi, good morning, church. My name is Danielle Couch, and I am a covenant partner here, and I have the honor of doing the scripture reading this morning. Today, we conclude our series in Philippians, studying the faith of an underdog. Christians can live securely trusting the covenant promises of God to provide all we need in Jesus Christ, because Jesus was the ultimate underdog who was victorious for his people. Jesus is Lord of all, and he will provide all of our needs. When we trust Jesus, we will move from fear to connectedness, connectedness and living for credit in heaven. Hear the word of the Lord. Philippians 4, 10 through 20. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning, church. It is. It's what I'm talking about right there. It's a joy to be with you. If you have your Bibles, please keep them open to Philippians 4. We're going to be in the text. If you've got phones, I encourage you to open your Bibles on your phone. Uh, maybe put it on airplane mode so uh, people texting you uh, don't, don't bother you. But uh, if you're not in the practice of bringing your Bibles to church, now's a great time to reclaim that practice. We're uh, practicing precautions by not having Bibles on your rows. Uh, and it's just a good practice when we study God's Word and the worship of Him to have our noses down deep and hope that his word will come into our hearts. And today, uh, the, the uh, last sermon in our series, Underdog Faith, the title, it really comes directly from verse 19. Uh, we just read it. Our God, my God, writes Paul, will supply every one of your needs according to the riches of his grace that are found in Christ Jesus. Here's my question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will provide every one of your needs according to the riches that are found in Christ Jesus? All of your financial needs, all of your friendship needs, all of your needs in questions about your future, all of your family needs, all of your fears can be resolved when we have faith in his covenant promises 
Today, we're going to look at this passage, and it's going to offer us three diagnostic questions that are going to be an opportunity for you to evaluate your heart and whether or not you hope and have faith in the promises of our covenant-keeping God. Many of us in the church are struggling with a crisis along with our culture. That crisis is a crisis of faith. We are in a prison of fear. And fear has different effects on different people. You may have heard it in fight, flight, or freeze. Many people who struggle with fear will move at other people in hostility. That's fight. Others uh, are afraid when you're full of fear and you flee, you run. And still others, when they experience fear, they freeze. And they just go with the current cultural currents of our day. But faith, faith in God's promises, faith that God really keeps his covenant promises and that he will give us all we need according to the riches of Christ Jesus, it has the opposite effect. There is a gospel countercurrent to the life of the Christian. We don't move away from people. We move towards people. We don't move towards people with hostility and anger, but we have open hearts and open hands. We don't freeze because of fear, but we find freedom in the faithfulness of our covenant-keeping and promise-keeping God. That's what we're studying today. And the three diagnostic questions for you and your heart and your personal evaluation begin with this. Are you connected to the body are you connected to the body this is exactly where paul starts in verse 10 14 to 16 but first i want to uh allow the common grace of our culture to help you understand the paradigm that i just laid out david brooks wrote a piece a commentary for the new york times last year before the pandemic 1919 and he quoted a book by a woman a philosopher named martha Nussbaum. what a name i love it uh and it's called the monarchy of fear and listen to what she says fear stokes anger which then stokes more fear anger is the child of fear the fearful person is asocial they flee. They reject a compassionate response to social problems. They freeze. And instead, they lash out. They fight. You see, Scripture, scripture teaches is, is known in just common sociological cultural categories. We tend to fight or flee or freeze when we fear. But faith in the abundant promises of our covenant-keeping God moves us towards commitment to the body. This is exactly where Paul begins, moving from the fracturing and the social friction of our culture to having, verse 10, concern for one another. Look at this verse. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. A revived concern for the body of Christ. A revived concern for another can only come when your needs are met, when you are satisfied. And the grace of God overflows the, the believer in God so that you can care for the concerns of another. And if you struggle with fear rather than faith, then you aren't concerned for others because you're only looking out for number 
one. And I love the word that Paul uses there, a revived concern. It is this word that carries with it a very clear image. It's an image that we all like. That word revive carries the connotation of spring. After winter, spring. After cold, warmth. After barrenness, flowering and fruitfulness. A revived concern that comes with the overflowing encounter with the grace of the living God and his faithfulness to his promises is manifest in a fruitful and flowering relationship with the body. Not only, though, is it concern for the other, look at verse 14, it is specific. It is carrying the troubles, the burdens of others. Paul writes, yet it was kind of you to, to share in my trouble. That, that word share is to carry the burdens of others, is to have our burdens so totally lifted and free that we can care for others by caring for their burden. It literally means to trouble with someone. Trouble with. You see, when, you, when you're struggling with fear, you're troubled by people. People are obstacles. But when faith gives you freedom, then you're free to trouble with others, to carry their burden. This is a gospel trajectory to communi- community, period. We have a God who entered into our fallen world and carried our burden of perfect humanity and then carried our burden of sin on the cross. He paid for that burden and gave us his righteousness so that we are free to respond to his grace by moving towards people with concern and carrying their burdens just like Christ did for us. You see, when we know that grace, we live that grace, and we understand that we're more than just people coming to worship together. We're committed partners. And this is what we see in verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me, giving and receiving. You see, this common identification in Christ puts us in the same family, brothers and sisters. And it leads us, it compels us to have a mutual participation in one another's life that is marked by giving and receiving. That only comes when our hearts are overflowing with the fullness of God's faithfulness to his promises. If you don't believe Jesus will provide all that you need, then you will not have concern for the body. You will not carry burdens for the body. And you will not commit in partnership to the body. When you do not have trust in God's sovereignty, his sovereign grace to provide, you will see others as competition, not people that are covenant partners. You will see others in an effort to try to control them to make sure you get what you need because we operate in fear with a scarcity mentality. That is, there won't be enough resources financially. There won't be enough resources time-wise. There won't be enough resources in our family or in our business or in our community or in our country. And fear begins to see other people as pawns that we try to control to make sure we get what we need or people to manipulate or compete with. The gospel frees us of that scarcity mentality that is slavery to our fears. And it frees us for an abundance mentality where we understand God is God. He's the creator of all. He's promises to provide all for his people. And the question is not whether or not he's going to be faithful. The question is whether or not his people are going to believe it. Do you? 
Oh, I say yes with my lips, but I wonder if my life reflects commitment to his body, a connectedness, a real caring and concern. The second diagnostic question is, are you content? And I'm just going to tell you, Paul, in this fourth chapter of Philippians, he gets a little too good at meddling, all right? He gets all up in your kitchen. I'm telling you, he gets too personal. And this isn't me meddling. This is the Spirit of God with the Word of God. And it asks you, if you really believe this, are you content? Are you content? Paul says in verse 11, I know, I'm speaking uh, of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. The anchoredness of contentedness in every situation. Do you know it? In the low times of your life? In the high times of your celebration? In your times of hunger, relationally, hunger for hope, physical hunger, in your need, in your poverty, but also in your riches, in your feasting. Do you know that contentedness that comes through Christ? The struggle of our fallen world that has strength in his all-sufficiency? Here's the reality, friends. We are in the midst of, of, a, of, a, of a period of history where times are changing historically. Maybe more than anyone in this room or we have in our congregation knows in our lifetime. But you know what's not changing? Jesus Christ. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the same yesterday that he is today, that he will be tomorrow. And when we talk about contentedness, we're not talking about our circumstances, but we're talking about a Christ-centeredness, a Christ-satisfaction, a Christ-exalting, a Christ-fulfilled, a Christ-centered life, where we know the locality of our faith in the ultimate underdog, who, though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He experienced injustice. He experienced poverty. He experienced homelessness. Homelessness, he experienced hunger, he experienced social rejection, he experienced tough economic times, and he came out of the grave so that those who trust in him can go through any and all circumstances and know that we can be victorious in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Question to the church, do you believe it? That's the promise of the gospel. In all circumstances and in any circumstance. But secondly, in all things, all things, Paul says this, and you know what? We had a, a confirmand last week use this passage as one of their favorite passages in the correct way. They did. They did a good job. But a lot of people, when, when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I wish he was saying that I could wake up tomorrow morning and dunk a basketball on a 10-foot goal. He's not. I wish he was saying that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so I can jump out of a plane without a parachute and land. He's not. I wish he was saying that I could enter into the national yodeling competition this week and without practice or preparation or training, I could win the national yodeling trophy. He's not. I can do all things through Christ 
who strengthens me means in this context and for every Christian that when we believe in the covenant faithfulness and the promises of God that we can be content. Because while our circumstances are ever-changing more rapid now than ever before, we have an unchanging God who will give you all you need. Are you anxious? Jesus is our peace. Are you hungry? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Are you thirsty? Jesus says, I am the living water. Are you afraid? Afraid of the dark? All the darkness in our culture? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who knows me walks in me, and you'll never walk in darkness again. Are you lonely? Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Are you insecure? Trying to find sure footing in an ever-changing, unstable situation? Jesus says, I am the rock. And though the storms come, you will not be moved. Do you need wisdom? You want to know what your next step is or how to handle your current situation? Paul in Colossians chapter 1 calls Jesus the treasure of all wisdom and all understanding. Are you having financial problems? Wondering how you're going to get out of this hole? Jesus said, we are co-heirs with him. All the riches of heaven that belong to God are ours in Christ with him. Are you grieving? Jesus says, I want to comfort you, and I weep with you. Are you tired? Tired of all the exhausted news and uh, new cycles and just the, the physical and emotional exhaustion that comes in navigating this uncertain time? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Are you experiencing shame? Shame from the ways you've handled, coped, medicated through this season? Are you carrying shame? Jesus says, come to me. I died on the cross to pay for your shame, and I will give you my righteousness. An unchanging God is where we put ourselves inside of with faith in an ever-changing world. In church, that gives us contentedness. Contentedness is part of the chorus of all the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8, Paul talks about and commands the church to, to be content, and he puts it in direct contrast with finding contentment with our financial resources and our wealth. We cannot have it there. In fact, a fool tries to find it there. But the wise person finds their contentedness in Christ. The same contrast is drawn in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. In the, the direct correlation between having contentedness in this life and not finding, seeking contentedness in this world is found in the promise of the presence of God, the exact thing that we're talking about here. The author says, didn't Jesus promise that I will never leave you or forsake you? We become individuals who are totally satisfied with the grace of Jesus Christ, totally content with his mercy and his love, totally dependent on him and secure in him, knowing that God will provide. Has anyone ever accused you of being content? That's fruit of faith, 
knowing that God's true to his promises and he says, I will give you everything you need according to the riches, the promises, the glory that's found in Jesus Christ. And when we get this, when we, when we understand it, the last diagnostic question is, is just a no-brainer. Whose credit are you living for? Whose credit are you living for? Because men's chief end, as we noted uh, earlier in our catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We live for credit of the King and credit for the kingdom. But if we are constantly living for our own validation, our own sense of self-worth, our own image before everybody, our own sense of security, totally living for the credit of our culture, that diagnoses our heart that we really may not believe that Jesus gives us everything we need. You see, the word credit isn't something I'm making up. It's something that Paul uses. Look down in verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, he writes, uh, the Philippian church, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You see, the relationship of mutual reciprocity because of our common identification in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it, it, it puts us in this eternal reality where when we show generosity, we're actually getting eternal credit. <laughs> is this prosperity theology? No. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up treasures, where? In heaven. No moth can take them. No crashing economy can steal them. No rust will wear it out. No thief can steal it. Eternal treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart is also. We can't serve two gods. We can't serve the gods of our culture and our king. And generosity, giving for credit of the kingdom is characteristic of people who believe the covenant faithfulness of God's promises. People who say yes and believe and know that Jesus Christ really is the, the presence, the, the location of all the riches and all of the treasure, as Paul calls them in Colossians 1.27. I want to take you now to a passage that we referred to a moment ago in 2 Corinthians because there is this uh, correlation all through the New Testament between these two realities. That is the, the covenant-keeping promises of God and leading us to contentedness in all circumstances and then uh, uh, joyfully giving as a response to that. If you'll turn with me or look on the screen to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6-8, hear these words. The point's this, says Paul, whoever sows sparingly also will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as they've decided in their hearts, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Pay attention. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, now that word sufficiency could and probably should be translated contentedness, having all contentedness, in all things and in all times that you may abound in every good work. You hear that? Having this satisfaction, this contentedness in our hearts compels us to radically sow, to be generous, to be surprising in our generosity. 
to be overwhelming in our generosity. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because his love for us is based on our performance, and if we perform well, he's going to love us? No! (laughs) No! That's not the gospel! Because the gospel is that he who knew no sin, he took our sin, he became sin, and he gave us his righteousness. The gospel, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, or 1 Corinthians 8, 9, one of the Corinthians, it's in there. <laughs> Glad it's funny to you. There's grace. It abounds. But God, who was rich, he became poor so that for your benefit, you might become rich. The gospel is that God gives you all riches, and when we know that from our heart and trust that with our lives, God loves a cheerful giver because it shows you believe him and you trust him. Are you generous? Are you? Are you sowing sparingly or are you sowing abundantly? Are you afraid? i got to hold on to this. I don't know what's going to happen. Or are you just totally open? going, I am called to show concern. I am called to carry your burden. I am called to be your covenant partner in all of this so that our great king can be exalted. And I'm doing it selfishly because I know when I'm giving to you, I'm storing up treasures in heaven. (laughs) Jesus said it. It's more blessed to give and receive. That's a little secret. The culture says something totally different. It's better to receive, receive again. You don't know what's going to happen but it's more blessed to give. I don't know how it works, but somehow in Christ it does. I'm not sure if you've taken our spiritual gift survey yet. I hope you have. Uh, You can do it online. Uh, Part of the uh, Redeeming the Crisis Task Force. It's fun uh, to see what gifts that God has given you. We believe, we know everyone's been affected by our current crisis, and everyone's got a role in redeeming the crisis. And I'm humbled to have officers that care deeply enough to be strategic about responding uh, to the casualties that are cascading down from the COVID-19 health crisis. But I was with a guy this week uh, having lunch with him who was telling me he took the spiritual gift survey, and he said, you know what one of my gifts was? It was generosity. And I thought to myself, guess I'm not paying for lunch, right? Yeah. I mean, who am I to rob this guy of using his gift, right? Yeah. So at that point, uh, my posture was a lot better because free lunch, right? Anyway, uh, he was talking about how he didn't even know generosity could be a spiritual gift. It is. But it's not limited to people who have the gift. It's actually commanded from everyone if you know the gift of God's grace. You know, um, Martin Luther called this the third baptism. He said that we need to be baptized in our hearts, converted, third conversion. We need to be converted in our hearts. We need to be converted in our minds. And then we need to be converted in our purse. And my first response to that is, did Martin Luther carry a purse? Because that's weird, right? <laughs> I mean, just, just be honest. I'm a man, I don't carry a purse. Maybe some people do. But his point is that nothing is excluded when we come to Christ, and so often we hold on to our resources <laughs> and say, Jesus, you are Lord of everything, except for this, <laughs> right? Right? Or is it just a table for one up here? Am I the only one that does that? You know, it was a, it was a former Tennessean, a man by the name of Sam Houston. He was the first president of the state of Texas, uh, one of your first governors, or he was the first president of the country of Texas, one of the former governors of the state, 
And, uh, and I'm hesitant to talk about former Tennesseans to gave, who gave their life for the independence of, of this state. We're right down the street from the Alamo. It just gets me nervous every time. And I would, I would say, you know, like, hey, Texans, you're welcome for Tennesseans, but conser- considering our, our current political environment, you might want to be independent, right? Or we, I don't know. But Sam Houston, he was a fiery politician who encountered the radical grace of God. He became a Christian, and he was baptized in a river uh, towards East Texas. And I don't know how much of this is folklore and how much of it is true, but the story goes that when he was going in to be baptized, he had his pocket watch. And they said, uh, Mr. Houston, you need to take your pocket watch out of your suit. He said, okay, sorry about that. And he went in. He went underwater. He was baptized, came out, and he had his wallet still in his pocket. And they said, well, Mr. Houston, you should have taken your wallet out of your pocket. He said, no, you don't understand. When my heart is baptized and my head goes underwater, my wallet gets wet too. We have a culture of Christians who are afraid to be generous. And I don't, like I said, I don't know how much of that is true, but I do know this is true. That later in his political career, uh, as he was trying to walk out his faith, his local church was in a time of financial need. And it was Sam Houston who said, I'm going to pay for our pastor's salary, half of it for the year, so that pastor is free to minister in this church and community and not worry about raising money. That's true. That's evidence of a generous heart. We are generous toward all, knowing that God will supply all of our needs. Can I read it again? Will you join me in looking at verse 18? This is really the summit view of everything in this book. If you have time, Paul writes, I've received full payment and well supplied, received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, fragrant offerings, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And I'm sorry I skipped that part in our notes because the generosity of of the church not only leads to a satisfaction in, in, in the church having what they need, but it also is a fragrant offering to God. It's a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. But he says, my God, our God, will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Every need for your family, every need for your finances, every need for your friends, every need for your future, every need God promises to provide. And this is, this is really the, the conclusion of this book in a sense that it it, it poetically unites the whole letter together. And if you have time later today, take 15 to 20 minutes and read all of the book of Philippians and you will see how Paul is articulating the culmination of the argument or the the testimony that he started sharing in chapter 1, verse 27. That for me to live is Christ. That I'm so obsessed with my unity in him, my identity in him, my security in him, that I do believe that he will give all that I need. In this summit view, this, this, uh, this perspective on the, on the space of grace, we see that it is God's generosity that is the source of our generosity in the gospel. We see that, that God's substance of his love and his covenant commitment to us is the substance of our contentment. And that the strength of our connection with one another comes from the unbreakable strength of his mercy and love. Do you believe this? If you don't believe it this morning, then come join me. 
because it is a tough battle. What we don't need is a bunch of Christians pretending to believe something and not believing it. If you don't know Christ here today, then I want to invite you to come know Jesus personally. I talk to people all the time who grew up in the church, they're religious, they can answer questions, but they have not trusted Jesus with their heart. I meet people all the time who are all religious. They have no religion. They're nuns. They don't claim any affiliation. If you fall in those categories and you don't know Jesus, and you long to have this security, then let's talk. Put your faith in the one who's given himself for you. Come to Christ, wildly abandoning yourself to his lordship. But friends, church, if you know Jesus, then join me on this journey of asking the Lord to give us more faith. I believe, Jesus. Will you help me with my unbelief? You say all I need is a mustard seed, just a tiny bit of faith, just a little bit to lean into your promises, to trust your promises more than my experiences, to live by faith and not by sight. Will you join me in that journey, church, in believing God and his promises that he will give everything we need, which will be abundantly more than we can ask or imagine Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Son of David, we thank you that you are king. And we confess that oftentimes in the seas of our struggles, we get lost in the storm. We thank you for the beacon of hope and the solid rock that you are and your faithfulness to us and your promises. We ask, Lord, that you would give us faith, faith to believe, faith to trust. For those that have no faith and have never come to know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, Would you ambush them with your spirit? Draw them to yourself. For those of us who do know you and are just really struggling, would you help us to believe? We hold on to things too tightly. Our wallets, our status, our significance, our perceived success. Lord Jesus, would you help us to let go and fully trust you, knowing that in your promises, no matter what our circumstances, it is well with our soul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.